This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on a Tuesday afternoon. Coming up after 2.30, so uh, an early COVID update and uh, what could be a busy COVID update. It won't be uh, just Dr. Hinshaw. Uh, Premier Jason Kenney will be there. Health Minister Tyler Shander will be there. So I suspect that means some kind of an announcement or, or update or something of significance, but uh, we will have that live for you coming up in just under half an hour. 974-8255 is our number here. Off the top of this hour, I wanted to have a conversation uh, around the religious aspect uh, of Christmas and the religious observances that go with the holiday and some of the challenges around that as a result of the pandemic. So how do worshipers, how do churches and pastors balance public health with religious faith? Obviously, houses of worship can still be open uh, with masks, of course, with uh, no more than 15% capacity. Uh, so it could be a challenge, perhaps, uh, for those who, who are looking to go to a, a Christmas or a Christmas Eve service uh, to, to ensure that there's room for them. And maybe there are other ways of observing the um, the religious nature of the holiday. So joining us to talk more about uh, some of these matters, and uh, also, by the way, to talk about uh, his latest book, which is called God is Loser Friendly, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and me. Very pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Reverend Tim Calloway. He's the pastor at Daybreak Community Church. Tim, good to talk to you again. Welcome back to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for the invite. Well, I appreciate you making some time for us here today. So, um, you know, given what you might normally be doing uh, this time of year, just a few days before Christmas, is is this year necessarily different than, than previous years? Oh, very much so. You know, yeah. I, I don't know if I'll ever get used to sitting in a large cavernous auditorium speaking to the four or five tech people <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. are live streaming our programs. It's just uh, a surreal experience. They they never taught me. I'm so old. They never taught us in seminary how to deal with this kind of stuff, Rob. No, I bet they didn't. <laughs> um, but do you think? I mean, is is uh, is a Zoom religious service um, as legitimate, if that's the right word, as as the real thing? Well, you know, I think there's all kinds of reasons to be thankful for it. You know, um, yeah. Thirty-five years ago, this wasn't even a possibility. Twenty-five years right. ago, probably wasn't even a possibility. <laughs> so, um, technology is a wonderful thing, and it certainly, uh, at a time like this, you know, enables us to stay in touch and be together. But um, you know, uh, Bruce Springsteen has an old song about we need a little of the human touch, and I yep. think there's a lot of people that are really going to be missing that, particularly this Christmas season. I've told uh, so many people who have shared their concerns and their woes with me that I think it boils down to a matter of perspective. And, um, you know, as a parent, uh, we have children scattered around Canada and in the U.K. Naturally, I'm disappointed that they can't be home for Christmas this year, just like everybody else. 
But at the same time, I have to put it in a broader perspective, and I'll tell you what I'm uh, meaning when I say that. So there are going to be families who are not together this Christmas because COVID notwithstanding, they cannot be. And I've been graphically reminded of this when just uh, 10 days ago, my next-door neighbor succumbed to a heart attack just shy of 53 years of age. And uh, as you can appreciate, just an absolute shock, leaving a husband and three teenage young adult children. We had the memorial service this past Sunday, just 10 people there. And um, so that's what I'm talking about when I encourage people to see it in perspective, okay? There are families who would dearly love to be together and would be even despite COVID, but death prevents it. And then at this time of year, there are those families, of course, who are not together because of uh, not just COVID, but because of broken and fractured relationships. And even if they could be together, they wouldn't be together. And so that's what I'm talking about when I really try to encourage people to see uh, this COVID Christmas, as I call it, in proper perspective. There's that, that interesting theological question. I was reading an article about this the other day where, you know, we've had to deal with so much this year. And, and for some, it's, you know, there, there's solace in, in religion, solace in that relationship with God. To others, it's it's questioning it. You know, where where is God, or why would God uh, allow this to happen, or, or unleash all of this on the world? Well, what are you hearing from, from people on, on either side of that? Well, I'm certainly uh, hearing both sides of it, for sure. You know, there are those who think that uh, basically through COVID, God is trying to get our attention. Um, I mean, you talk about a medical pandemic, Rob, you could build a good case for saying that we've got a moral pandemic in this country, and I'm referring to uh, what I just mentioned about broken mm-hmm. families, broken marriages, all kinds of things like that. So there are those that say that God's trying to get attention, our attention, and I think there's some value uh, to that. On the other hand, there are those that are more cynical, more skeptical, and they look at it and they just say, where is God in the midst of all of this? One of the things that I find myself continually reminding people is God, as as I understand the Bible, as I understand theology, God is not a robot, okay? Nor is God a vending machine. And I think sometimes we have this incorrect notion that basically all we have to do is approach this cosmic vending machine, put in our loony or toony of a prayer, push the right button, and by gosh, we better get the button, the products of the button right. that we push, or we're unhappy about it. And, uh, you know, God is a personality. Uh, God has his or her own mind, a way of doing things. And so to approach God as a vending machine or God as a robot and uh, just use the occasion to lash out at God when things go wrong, uh, I think there's some problems with that approach as well. Well, it's interesting. And I mean, and we'll talk about your book, which is about, you know, the relationship with God. I mean, it, it is, I suppose, at essence, a, a personal relationship. And it gets back to the point about, you know, the community of, of church, the community of, of um, you know, the, the congregation, and, and the importance of, of being in church. But ultimately, is, is it more about that personal relationship? The pandemic 
precludes you from being in church or precludes you from being with, you know, other members of the congregation, that ultimately, wherever you are, and even if you're alone, you still have that relationship, don't you? Well, I think it provides a wonderful opportunity to cultivate, you know, the more private uh, component of a relationship with God. Uh, I think there are people who try to sort of live vicariously through others and uh, use their relationship with God, but when you can't be with others, obviously it's, uh, you know, just yourself, and you've got to sit down and give some serious thought. Okay, just where am I in my relationship to God? Who, what do I perceive God to be? And where do I get those notions of, of God? Um, I pastor in Airdrie, Rob, and as you know, uh, Airdrie is a rapidly growing community, and uh, mm-hmm. I talk with people who have all kinds of ideas about God, and I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, and I like to say to them, okay, where do you get this notion, if you even know? And um, I tell you, uh, I'm old. I just turned 64 yesterday, Rob. And I'm oh, reminded, happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm reminded that the 20 and 30-somethings that make up the, the vast majority of the population of Airdrie, they see things differently, you know, and a lot of them don't have sort of the standard Canadian Christian upbringing that people of my generation uh, had. And so they're reading all kinds of things. They're into all kinds of uh, movies, podcasts, uh, that sort of thing, that give them some pretty interesting notions about God. And I always find it a fascinating uh, endeavor to sit down and just listen, not talk so much, but just listen as they explain to me about their notion of God and where and how they came about acquiring such. Well, and, and let's segue in, into your latest book. I think this is your, your third book now, but this one actually, uh, maybe the seeds were planted for this one, but before the others. I understand that the kind of the idea for this book, which is called God is Loser Friendly, actually goes back to when you were a, uh, a rather young man, right? <laughs> you know, Rob, uh, this, this has been a product, no kidding, of about 25 years and, uh, you know, there's a number of reasons why it's taken so long besides uh, that I'm, I'm daft. Uh, I took time out <laughs> oh, to dear. complete a PhD, which uh, took a lot of attention away. But mm-hmm. actually, this idea was born back in the late 1990s by virtue of a uh, PBS television series that I, I watched. And Bill Moyers was the host of an amazing panel of people. And what they were doing were simply looking at the stories in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And again, uh, many people, particularly older Canadians, uh, you know, very conversant with the stories of Abraham. I mean, he was, he's considered the father of the world's three great monotheisms. So Abraham is a great man of faith, Isaac, Jacob, and others. But this perspective um, said, you know, when you stop and just take the text at face value, just read these stories for themselves, all of these characters had a dark side, in fact, a very dark side. And as I reflected on this, I thought, you know, there's a sense in which all of them were indeed losers. And I'm using the dictionary definition of a loser as someone who fails repeatedly. Someone who fails repeatedly. Well, I don't know about you, Rob, but when I look in the mirror... I quite regularly see somebody who has his own fair share of failures. Yeah. 
And uh, so I, I don't use the word loser to be demeaning. I just use it to be realistic and say the amazing thing is that these great spiritual icons in the book of Genesis, the writer or the writers of the book of Genesis make no attempt whatsoever to hide their foibles and their uh, immorality. And it's just absolutely astounding when you stop to think that, okay, this, this is the way that the Bible begins. Why so? And what I'm trying to answer in the book is to say that really the story of Genesis, and uh, I would argue the story of the entire scripture, is that God is a God of grace. He uses us, he blesses us, he graces us despite ourselves. And you see that over and over again in the book of Genesis and ongoing into Scripture. I mean, you look at a person like Jacob, and, uh, I mean, is there anybody that Jacob didn't rip off in the book of Genesis? Absolutely not. The guy was a shyster. (laughs) And yet, you know, when God finally catches up with him, and, uh, you know, there's all kinds of notions as to how and why of the narrative, but God can't even seem to be bothered to clip him upside the head and say, smarten up. He just says, I'm going to bless you, going to bless you. And Jacob turns around and rips the next guy off. And you just want to give this guy a grab around the throat and give him a shake, you know, until you start to realize, you know what, I can be a lot like Jacob in my own life. And before I start pointing my finger at him and calling him a loser, I need to look in the mirror and look at that guy and say, you're as much of a loser as any of these people. So basically what I'm trying to do is just bring a somewhat novel approach to some of these great uh, icons of the Bible and say, you know, they all had feet of clay just like most of us. So, I mean, why do you think people need to hear that, though? Is is there a, a, a pursuit of perfection, or do, do people think that maybe God's standards are, are too high? What, what do you think it is? Well, uh, I'm Protestant, uh, as you know, Rob, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Catholic Church has their tradition of saints and beatification of spiritual people and that sort of thing. And one of the points I make in the book is that I think whether we want to admit it or not, even we Protestants have our way of appointing spiritual icons like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca, Sarah, Rachel, uh, females as well. We would never call them saints, perhaps, like the Catholics might, but nevertheless, they are our, uh, uh, they're the people that we look up to spiritually and sort of put on a higher shelf, and we always view ourselves as being just a little less than they are. And the, the more I read and reread through Genesis, I thought, no, these, these are not nice people. I mean, Abraham, uh, St. Paul in the New Testament talks about Abraham as being the great father of faith and, and an example to everybody about great faith. Well, the same chapter in which uh, Abraham demonstrates faith, he's telling his wife to lie to the king whose area they're going through, tell the king that she's really his sister, and the fact of the matter is that would have opened up uh, Sarah to all kinds of harm. Basically, what Abraham is saying, I don't care who you have to sleep with as long as my neck is spared. <laughs> well, stop and think about it. Really? That's, a, that's the kind of spiritual icon you want to look up to? That guy had some major problems, just like the rest of us do. 
That's a good point. Uh, the book is called God is Loser Friendly. It's available uh, on Amazon. Uh, Tim, always good chatting with you. Uh, Merry Christmas, and, and thanks for making some time for us here today. And, and happy belated birthday once again. Thanks a lot. Best <laughs> of the season to you and yours. Thanks again. All the best uh, to you. Uh, that is uh, Reverend Dr. Tim Calloway. He's the pastor at uh, Daybreak Community Church uh, in Airdrie. Uh, his uh, latest book, as mentioned, called God is Loser Friendly, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Me. Uh, Tim Calloway, you can find his book on Amazon. All right, welcome back. 403-974-8255. Uh, as uh, 2020 draws to a close, there's some confusion around the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, CERB which I guess was straightforward enough when it rolled out, but uh, now that some people are being told that they have to uh, repay that money, there's a lot of questions. And part of the confusion comes down to how the Canada Revenue Agency is defining income. Do we mean gross income? Do we mean net income after expenses? Gross income minus expenses? If you're confused about what you should do, when the Canada Revenue Agency says you may have to pay, repay money received through CERB, you're in good company. As Global News notes, tax experts aren't quite sure either. Letters sent out in recent weeks by the CRA to hundreds of thousands of CERB recipients say the requirement to have income of at least $5,000 in 2019 of the 12 months prior to applying refers to net income for self-employed individuals. Those who applied for CERB based on their income before claiming expenses and have less than $5,000 in, in net income now worried they'll have to pay, repay up to $14,000 worth of benefits, money some say they don't have. So why would there be this confusion? Does it lie with those who, who applied for CERB, who maybe didn't uh, read the fine print here, or has the Canada Revenue Agency created some of this confusion? So joining us to try to sort out some of these important questions, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here today, uh, Alan Nalanthier. He's a retired partner of an international accounting firm, a chartered professional accountant himself, has been an advisor to both the Canada Revenue Agency and the Department of Finance. He's got a piece on all of this. You can read today at financialpost.com. Alan, thank you so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Thanks. Uh, thanks for asking me. So, I mean, do we have clear answers at this point, or, or are we sort of stuck in, in a period of confusion still here on this income question? Uh, we're stuck in a period of confusion right now, Rob. The, um, as, as you may recall, over the last couple of days, Employment Minister Carla Qualtrill has come out saying she feels bad. Um, it's net income. In, in, in is what she's been told by her officials, um, although that's not what the CRA said at the outset. So she feels, quote-unquote, bad for Canadians who are facing financial hardship. The, the, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, says Canadians shouldn't worry over the holidays because they're not going to have to repay during Christmas. And in the new year, the government will work with individuals to find a path forward um, that makes sense. So, so their 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 talking points are that um, it's net income, and people are going to have to repay. But don't worry about it over don't worry about it over Christmas, uh, because we won't be we we won't be knocking down uh, your doors on on uh, December twenty fifth. But that's of uh, that's of little comfort, of course, to. Um, thousands of people that um, 
don't know what the answer is and don't know whether they're going to have to repay it or not. And if they are, where the heck do they find the money? Because they've already spent the CERB funds received yeah. on rent and, rent, rent and groceries. So the, the, the point about net income after expenses, which is, is now the CRA is, is saying they meant by $5,000 in income, they weren't saying that when CERB was ruled out, though, were they? Um, no, they weren't. They, no, they were not. They, had, um, they released some questions and answers, and there was no reference whatever um, to, it, it just said income from employment. Um, have you earned income of $5,000 in 2019 or in the 12 months preceding the date of your application. About three weeks later, they slipped in about 30 pages. very difficult to find it even today. I mean, it's not, if, if you go to page one, am I eligible? It, it says, you know, do you, uh, of course, serve has expired now. And so we're dealing with history. Uh, but if you go to the pages that are still there, am I eligible? It just asks if you, um, if you have income of five thousand, and you have to, you have to spend um, a fair amount of time to dig down, you know, to page thirty-seven A point three to find, you know, a reference to to net income. So um, the CRA has been unclear on this. They've dithered. They've they've changed positions, and. Um, I believe that the CRA is simply wrong. Um, their position today is that it's net income after expenses. I think that's incorrect. I think it's incorrect to the point of being frivolous. Um, and I think the CRA should withdraw their incorrect interpretation. Go after the people that do owe money, people that receive double payments, for example. Um, mm -hmm. But people that relied on uh, the department's initial position that this was gross uh, gross income. In fact, that is, in my view, clearly the correct position. So I think the uh, um, I think the CRA should be withdrawing their a good portion of the four hundred and forty one thousand letters that they sent out. Admit they made a mistake. Correct their interpretation and let people get um, get on with their lives. You spent a lot of your life immersed in, in all of this stuff. When we look at how the term income is used elsewhere, you know, you know, the Tax Act, uh, for example, Income Tax Act, and, and in other areas, and it seems as though that it's typically used a certain way, and, and now the government's decided that, that it means something else. Is that how you see it? Well, it's typically, most of, as a tax practitioner, you know, I spent 40 years dealing with the Income Tax Act. Right. And un under the Income Tax Act, income is defined to mean profit or net income after expenses. That's the Income Tax Act. Uh, Ottawa decided that CERB was not going to be part of the in Income Tax Act. It was going to be a separate new um, enactment, separate okay. legislation. So we take the, you know, the Income Tax Act is more than 2,000 pages. Yeah. Um, and... Department of Finance could have simply put the CERB provisions within the Income Tax Act and have all the Income Tax Act rules apply. But they didn't do that. They made a new act, which is 14 pages long, which has no definition, contains no definitions, no rights of objection or appeal given to the taxpayer, no provision for interest or penalties, 
It's just a 14-page enactment passed by Parliament and 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 by this and by the Senate. Um, it's law. It's 14 pages, and um, it's not part of the Income Tax Act, and there are no definitions. So I go to the CERB Act, and it says, okay, I have to have income of 5000 What the heck does that mean? Um, so typically what we do, Rob, in cases like this and what the courts do, you look for guidance. The first thing you go to are English language dictionaries or English or French language dictionaries or legal um, dictionaries. Um, like what's, what's a dictionary definition? Well, when we do that, you know, um, we don't find anything. A dictionary will tell us what gross income means. It means it's revenue. Tell us what net income means. It's after expenses. It doesn't tell us what income means. So the best place to go is actually one little sentence in the Income Tax Act. And it's been there since 1917. This is not, nothing new. It's, 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 um, it's somewhat surprising that Ottawa would have overlooked it. And the little sentence says that income, quote-unquote, for, for income tax purposes, is deemed to be net income or profit, net income after expenses. Now, we, the Income Tax Act from 1917 till today would not have, we, wouldn't, we would not have a provision that deems, quote-unquote, income to be net income unless the two terms were different to start with. You don't deem, you know, you don't deem something to be something that's not when, when they're exactly the same thing. Um, I'm, I, if, if I'm getting, um, I hope I'm not confusing the listeners. A little article I just put out, um, I quoted Yogi Berra. Yogi <laughs> Berra said, was one of his things, we made too many wrong mistakes. Well, <laughs> you don't make a wrong mistake, of course. You make a mistake. And when you go to the Income Tax Act, it would not deem income to be net income unless the two terms were different to start with. So just looking at the income tax legislation, there's only one thing we know for certain. And the one thing we know for certain is that income is not net income after expenses. Otherwise, we would never have that provision. That provision never would have been added in 1917 and exists until that day. So it's very clear to me that the CRA is wrong, that the term income, when it's undefined, as it is in the CERVAC, means gross income before expenses. And there's other um, there's other support for that. The we have a 2001 Supreme Court of Canada case that says income, when it's undefined, means gross income, not in income after expenses. We look at what what did Parliament intend when it passed the CERB Act? Well, the day after it passed the House of Commons, Bill Morneau testified before the Senate. And Bill Morneau said, listen, we've included a test, and under the test, you have to have $5,000 of revenue. You didn't say income or net income. It's revenue. Um, so I, I, I think there's, there's a, a number of compelling reasons uh, why the CRA is simply wrong. Um, it's not 
It's not net income. They're harassing people. Um, we have Employment Minister Carla Qualtro saying she feels bad and the Prime Minister saying, don't worry about it. And Carla Qualtro and Justin Trudeau, to me, miss the point. Um, mm-hmm. Their their statements are, are based on the assumption that income is net income after expenses, and that's simply wrong. They don't understand it's wrong. But hopefully shows like um, this one you're doing today, the message is going to start getting through to them. Now, you, you had a piece recently talking about how, how this was rushed, and it was very deliberately rushed. Uh, but to what extent did the government's, um, you know, haste in, in, in getting this all in, implemented contribute to this, this confusion now? Um, I think it contributed a bit, Rob, but, you know, Canada's not alone. There's income support and subsidy programs around the world. UK, Germany, Australia, United States. I mean, Canada was not uh, alone in this. And yes, people had to work quickly and they had to work smartly. Um, but other countries did that and they, 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 they didn't run into, uh, this type of fiasco. I think, um, you know, too many cooks, uh, spoil the brew. Uh, I think there's too many young, wet behind the ear staffers, political staffers in the prime minister's office and the finance minister's office that poke around at these things. If they would just step back, get the politicians and get the political staffers out of the way and let the civil servants do their job. I mean, I've worked my entire career with um, basically mostly on the other side of the fence and in opposition to officials of the Department of Finance and the officials at the Canada Revenue Agency. Uh, but these are fine individuals. They're, um, they're educated. They're committed. If you just let them do the, their job, they'll do their job. Um, but there's been political interference here, and it's pretty obvious to me um, there was interference uh, from staffers as well, uh, which is why this legislation turned out to be um, as poor as, as it is. There were just too many people mucking around with it. Well, we'll see what uh, comes of all of this. Uh, we got to leave it there for now. Alan, appreciate the insight on this, and thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really do appreciate well, it. Yeah, thanks very much. All right, all the best. You take care. Uh, that's uh, Alan Lanthier. Uh, he's a uh, retired partner of an international accounting firm, a chartered professional accountant, uh, previously uh, been an advisor to both the Department of Finance and the Canada Revenue Agency. So he calls this a fiasco. Let's talk about uh, the situation in the UK. So as mentioned, Canada has uh, blocked up flights for 72 hours from the United Kingdom. Alberta now urging anybody who's been in the UK for the last 14 days to get a COVID-19 test. Uh, So the world watching all of this closely. And again, the concern here is that this variant of the virus potentially spreads even more quickly, which is, is certainly concerning because we know this is a contagious virus. The good news is it doesn't appear to pose a risk to our vaccine arsenal. Uh, but joining us uh, for some insight uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Dr. Craig Jenny, who's, of course, at the University of Calgary, uh, infectious disease specialist uh, as well. Uh, Dr. Jenny, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. 
Uh, so first of all, I mean, the, the idea that, that a virus would, uh, would mutate, that we would see uh, variations on a virus, that, that's pretty typical, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, that's essentially what viruses do uh, in, you know, the big picture. That's actually where this virus came from. It was a coronavirus in other species that mutated, and that mutation allowed it to uh, jump to humans. What have we seen so far, um, you know, since since March? Because, as I understand it, we, we've seen enough variation that we can get a sense of, you know, where the virus has gone, where, where you know, the, the Canada's cases came from certain parts of Europe or from the United States. That there are ways that we can track some of these changes. And, and a lot of them aren't necessarily really all, all that significant, though, are they? No, that's exactly right. So the virus is constantly mutating. And pretty much all viruses are. This is why, for example, we need a flu shot every year because every year the virus is so different. It's not that our immune system faded. It's that the virus is different and, and we need to, to educate our immune system every year for influenza. Coronavirus mutates much more slowly, so it is changing and it has been changing ever since it emerged. And because of those individual genetic changes, we can track different clusters and how the virus is spread. And most of the time, these changes really don't affect the virus's function or activities or immunogenicity very much. Every now and then there is a change, though, that can change the biology, and that may be something we're looking at here with this new viral variant. But even even with that in mind, the, the, the data is still pretty new. Um, it's, as one could imagine, often hard to map details when you can't do ethically infection studies. You, you right. can't give somebody one strain and another strain and say which one's worse. So we're tracking it based on numbers. And you know, there's, always, there's always another piece of that puzzle, and that is the virus may be a little different, but how are people behaving in the week before Christmas? How are people behaving with traveling back to hometowns and leaving university and things of that nature that could also explain rapid spread? So. Well, that's the thing, right? And, and we talk a lot about this this R value, which is just a, a way of, of trying to peg how quickly the virus is spreading. Mm-hmm. That, that number can, can fluctuate uh, considerably depending on how we're all acting, what kind of measures we have in place. So it, it is a real challenge to get a sense of, of how contagious or how more easily transmissible a certain strain might be. Yeah, absolutely. And as you pointed out with the R value, if we look at the virus here in Canada, we've not seen any dramatic or, or substantial changes say, between March or, or, or April and where we are today, and yet the R value is fundamentally different here in Alberta. And so if the virus doesn't change, that boils down to us. Our behavior has changed. And then that is a key feature of how viruses are spread. So this virus, yeah, yeah it, may, it may be more infectious. The question is, is that biologically or, or clinically relevant? Um, Perhaps, you know, more cases is always a problem in the community, but we are not seeing this virus be any more, you know, dangerous with respect to the people who have this variant are hospitalized more frequently. That That is not the case. And likewise, looking at where the virus is and what it does, or where the mutation is in the virus and what it does to how the virus looks, we do not think this mutation will let the virus escape the current vaccines. So biologically... Uh, it, it's it's not changing the game plan too much. It, it is something that we do have to perhaps look at with, again, reducing social context to help offset that increased spread. Right, and and I guess that's that's the challenge, you know, with the, a disease or the virus that's spreading as much as this one is, is we're giving it so many opportunities to spread. Yeah. Is is it another reason why we want to do whatever we can to to try to limit its spread? 
Absolutely, and, and this is probably where this three-day, uh, you know, air travel lockdown is coming from. We, we need to reassess what our screening protocols are. Do we need a secondary screen? Do we need to uh, adjust our testing a little bit? Um, so, for example, here in Alberta, we tend to look at a number of virus genes at the same time so that if the virus mutates any one of them, it doesn't escape even our screening platform. So, so we have a lot of redundancy and robustness in our screening. Other jurisdictions around the world aren't doing quite as good of a job. They're looking at a single gene, and it might be that this virus can escape. So some places will have to retool their screening. Uh, here in Alberta, we, we're pretty protected, pretty robust, but we do need to ensure that if there are travelers that they go through the appropriate screening. Right, and that's the thing with our, our PCR testing, and we're looking for, for the DNA signature of this virus. So even though we're seeing some of these mutations, that doesn't impact uh, the, the, the DNA of the virus. It doesn't impact our ability to use PCR testing and other tests to detect it, does it? No, it, it does if that's the only gene you're looking at. So if that's the only piece of the virus you're looking for, and it changes, your test may not pick it up. But again, here in Alberta, they've built a fairly robust test where we test three separate pieces of genetic material in that virus. So the virus that actually have to mutate all three targets at the same time to get through our screening procedure. So again, uh, you know, we've got a very robust protocol here in Alberta, and this mutation is not a threat. It doesn't seem to cause worse disease. It does not appear to escape the virus, but it does perhaps, and again, I, I strongly emphasize the perhaps, spread more easily. And, you know, when we've got a, a 12, 1,300 cases a day in the community, uh, we don't want to see that number go up at all. Absolutely. Well, some important insight. Dr. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate the input. You're welcome. Take care, Rob. All right. Take care. Uh, Dr. Craig Jenny, Associate Professor, University of Calgary, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases. Uh, so some thoughts from him on uh, what, what this, this potentially represents. So I'm going to keep a close eye on, as he says. Some potential areas of concern, but big picture doesn't appear to be more deadly and certainly doesn't appear to be a, a virus that can escape by the clutches of our vaccine arsenal. So that's encouraging. But obviously, as he says, given what we're dealing with already in terms of a case count, if, if you get to a situation where it is more easily transmissible, you know, that, that can make the challenge of bringing down those numbers uh, even more difficult. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. 403-974-TALK is the number. And we'll get back to the phones. Some more time for your calls coming up. Uh, let's uh, shift the conversation here about hockey to the professionals. And uh, is there going to be an NHL season this year? Well, looks as though there is. The NHL and the NHLPA have uh, come to an agreement for a 56-game schedule that will commence on January 13th. So everything's been agreed to terms of training camp and you know all the technicalities about waivers and roster size and how contracts are going to be adjusted for for this this shorter season all of that stuff there's a lot to hammer out despite all of that though there are still some outstanding questions namely how's this all going to work for the canadian teams now it was one thing to get health authorities on board for the idea of a bubble where everybody comes in, everybody's quarantined, everybody gets tested, everybody stays put. That worked out pretty well. But the plan here ideally is not to have a bubble. The plan would be 
in the context of this Canadian division that they've talked about, is the Edmonton Oilers would come to town, or the Vancouver Canucks would come to town, or the Toronto Maple Leafs would come to town. They'd have a game, or maybe a few games, at the Saddledome. No fans. And then after those games, the Maple Leafs would uh, go on to the next city, or you know the Flames would get set to welcome in another team, or go on the road themselves. So not having bubbles might make this a harder sell, with provincial health authorities. And at this point, from what we understand, uh, there's still an open question as to whether provincial health authorities in BC, Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec are going to agree to this. So there's still some potential hurdles uh, for this plan. Joining us uh, for some thoughts is Scott Stinson, national sports columnist, Post Media, or nationalpost.com. Scott, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on as always, Rob. So it is a little bit in flux. So what's your sense of, of where things stand here today between what's been agreed to with the league and the players and getting provincial health authorities on board? Well, it's funny because throughout this pandemic, we've had lots of instances where some sort of pro-sport plan was contingent on the sign-off from health authorities. Mm-hmm. And given that, for example, the Toronto Blue Jays were thought that they were steaming along toward an agreement to play in Toronto, ultimately to end up playing in Buffalo. Um, there's, there was talk of Vancouver hosting a NHL hub back in the spring and summer, and then that didn't happen, and it ended up being in Edmonton because BC health authorities couldn't come to agreement. I guess what I would say is, well, it seems like there's been some resistance, and and then after a couple of days of fretting that there was going to be no way for the Canadian teams to play in Canada. Now it sounds like maybe an agreement is possible. Um, We just don't know. And ultimately, we're going to find out when there is something signed off on. And, and, you know, we we can debate whether or not this is something that the health authorities need to be stepping in and, and ruling against or ruling in favor of. But it does seem now like there was a bit of media gaming going on a few days ago where the stories and the leaks came out that, that maybe the Canadian teams weren't going to be able to play in Canada. And then after that narrative got out there, there now seems to have been some walking back of that, that Mm -hmm. uh, storyline. I mean, just speaking from an Ontario perspective, the Ford Doug Ford government just announced a very broad lockdown plan that'll go on through all of January, but there was a specific exemption within it for high performance sports. So at least one province while increasing restrictions on the public is specifically seemingly setting themselves up to allow the NHL to play here. If, if everybody else agrees to do that. Yeah. That's a dilemma. I I think for health authorities, because you know, you're, you're imposing these restrictions on everybody and you're letting the NHL players do their thing. It feels like a double standard, but at the same time, if we're all going to be stuck in our homes, let us watch some hockey, right? So it's kind of like, yeah, there's a double standard, but yeah, we're also kind of giving people what they want. It's it's a tough balance, I think, in that sense. It is, and I think people also, it's worth noting, like these, these athletes and, their, and the staff as, as well are employees of Canadian businesses and Canadian-run businesses and Canadian-owned and operated businesses, and, and they are, you know, to... To turn around and say no, no, you need to go. They need to do all this in in the United States, where frankly the coronavirus pandemic is is considerably worse in a lot of areas of the states than it is in, in parts of Canada. Um, 
also seems a little cold to me to just sort of go, nope, can't cross the border, and, and we're not going to allow you to do it. And I'd also note, too, Rob, that that this plan isn't really, like, the double. The one thing about the double standard argument is that whatever it is the NHL might do, it would be very different than whatever some beer league would do. You know, like, they are they are planning to do testing, if not every day, then every other day. It'll be conducted in a, in a way that is, you know, about as low risk to the general public as you could be, while acknowledging that it's not zero risk. I mean, there would be people, they would be gathering in groups, they would be sweating and breathing heavily around one another, so you can't certainly guarantee no transmission at all. But it's not really the same thing as saying, well, you're shutting down, you know, kids' recreational hockey and allowing this. I can't believe you're, you know, letting these two things happen differently. I mean, the reality is they're very different operations we're talking about. Well, and I mean, look, we, we've talked about the problems that baseball had. The NFL has had some issues. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What's interesting to me, and it doesn't get as much attention, uh, MLS, Major League Soccer, which is, is a, a smaller operation than these other big leagues, but they seem to have done a pretty good job. And they had a situation where the Canadian teams were all in Canada, all played each other in their respective stadiums, and then they relocated to the U.S. and, and finished out the season. They seem to, to have relatively few problems compared to, to the bigger leagues. What, what do you make of the experience we, we've seen in other leagues? I think, really, it comes down to... Um you need to have the buy-in of the players and the staff to take this seriously and to follow the guidance and the guidelines. I think, in a way, MLS got kind of lucky because the timing that they came back at was when the the virus was at kind of a low ebb in a lot of places. And so they all gathered in Florida. There was a lot of uh, positive tests in the very sort of initial intake period but then once they got in a bubble in Orlando, as as happened with the NHL and the NBA, that pretty much took care of the positive tests. And then after that, they you know they kind of were used to the routine of of being careful, not gathering, following all the rules, and realizing all along that if you tested positive, like you were out of commission for a long period of time. Obviously, there's the risk of to your own personal health as well. But there's there's the problem of of what your absence means to your team and your spot in the team and all that. I think what we've seen more recently in the NFL is is just the problem. A, they're much bigger teams, way more people involved. Uh, they're traveling a lot more. And also the virus is just way more prevalent right now uh, in the States. So, you know, everyone's kind of saying of, of the NFL, well, they're – you know, they're getting close to the home stretch here, and I can't believe they got a season in. I, I would just say that, well, you know, don't count your chickens, folks, because they <laughs> still have a couple weeks to go in the regular season and then yeah, playoffs, exactly. and, and we'll see if they get through this without some major COVID calamity thing happen to them. But and, and I'm sure the NFL is the thing that the NHL is most worried about because, as we've seen, they've done all sorts of schedule remaking on the fly to be able to try to pull these games off, and I don't know that the NHL necessarily – is going to be able to do that given how many, you know, moving parts they're going to have to their schedule. It's interesting because it feels like we're so close to like the finish line of this whole situation that, that with vaccines coming, you know, there's hope on the horizon of some normalcy Mm -hmm. that, you know, once the summer leagues, baseball and the CFL can get going. And then once we're into the next year that, that Uh not, none of this is an issue, but it just feels like there's such a a bridge uh, here to, to, you know, to get over 
And things are a lot worse, as you say, uh, at the moment with the virus than they were in the summer. Uh, that poses a, a lot of potential issues here. I'm going to be curious to see if and how the, the NHL manages to pull this off because they don't want to be the, the ones who threw in a towel in the season after seeing all of their sporting cousins pull this off. But they got some challenges, don't they? They do. And, I mean, just to think about it, when, when you take it, we're kind of used to this idea because they've been floating this for a while. But to, to think, to step back and go, the seven Canadian teams are all going to play exclusively one another for 56 games. And then the first round of the playoffs is going to be, you know, four Canadian teams in, three Canadian teams out. You think about every year we talk about, oh, how many Canadian teams are going to make playoffs? Like, we already know. It's going to be four. Exactly. It's going to be three that don't. And, and that's just the way it is. And, and for, you know, a team like uh, Calgary or Toronto or Edmonton that would be thought to be the, the better ones amongst that group, like all of a sudden the whole prospect for your season has changed. I mean, you think about the rivalries that these teams traditionally have with with other teams in their division, and now they're completely out the window, and, and we'll see what happens. I mean, it's just, if you had, I mean, like so many things, Rob, if you had said, two years ago what about an all canadian division like we'd, people would just say well this is that's nonsense but like that's what we're dealing with and who knows i mean some people i think are excited about it i i do wonder if a month and a half into it fans are going to be a little sick of seeing the same teams uh night after night after night maybe right we'll see how it all plays out much more nationalpost.com scott appreciate it as always thanks so much for making some time for us here okay anytime Rob. have a good one all right, you as well. Take care. Uh, Scott yep. Stinson, national sports columnist for Post Media, nationalpost.com. You can read more from him. We'll see how this goes. I think the idea is, as he said, that if you're going to have an all-Canadian division, that'll be it. The Canadian NHL teams will stay on this side of the border. So that that's tricky because, I mean, I get it. Because if you're going to send them into the U.S. to play some road games, they're going to have to quarantine for two weeks when they get back, and that's pretty disruptive, uh, disruptive to a schedule. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Monday afternoon. A lot to get to here today. 403-974-TALK is our number, 974-8255. Off the top in this hour, though, a Canadian company and uh, one of its websites at the center of an international controversy involving some pretty serious issues like trafficking, exploitation, child pornography. So is Pornhub a part of the problem? Or can it be a part of the solution? Pornhub is, as the name implies, a pornographic website. It features both professional and amateur videos that, that people can upload. And uh, it's a pretty big website, as you might imagine. Uh, Pornhub and uh, another website, RedTube, are owned by a Montreal-based company known as MindGeek. Now, the story recently in the New York Times has focused a lot of attention uh, on this company and on Pornhub in particular, uh, suggesting that it was a big part of the problem when it comes to uh, this sort of uh, content. So the New York Times reported that Pornhub was hosting videos of child sexual assaults and exploitation. There was revenge pornography and, and all kinds of awful stuff. Now, Pornhub has, has certainly responded to all of this. They have, in fact, uh, removed all uploaded content from unverified users. Uh, 
that if there are problems with, with content, they're trying to, as I say, be a part of the solution here. Uh, but that's not enough to its critics. And I think there's a real moral crusade here, not just to clean up Pornhub, but to maybe shut it down altogether. It's an interesting piece up at uh, Reason Magazine uh, on all of this. Uh, joining us uh, to talk more about this whole controversy and what's really at the root of it. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, who's a senior editor at Reason Magazine, also uh, president of Feminist for Liberty. Much more at Reason.com. Elizabeth, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me on. All right. So, you know, it's interesting because I remember a couple of years ago, and I think we spoke at the time, uh, there was a big crusade going after the website Backpage um, because, you know, there were a lot of listings for uh, sex workers, basically, and, and there was a real crusade back then. Are, are you seeing something similar at, at play here now? Definitely. Um, I very much keep getting vibes, the same sort of, uh, you know, vibes we saw with Backpage, which is not to say that nothing bad ever has been uploaded to Pornhub, certainly. And I think, you know, it's, if we frame it as if it's part of the problem or not, that's, that's not exactly a good frame because Pornhub has historically sometimes been part of the problem. I mean, especially it was, you know, let sort of just people upload whatever, oftentimes things that they didn't have any rights to. It's a big thing that performers would complain about is that they would just, you know, people could just upload their content and, and say that, you know, and they wouldn't be able to make money off of it. So, and, it's been bad like that in the past, but it also has been trying to change, as you mentioned. Um, it's made a lot of big changes recently. Even before that, though, it's been, you know, talking with people in the industry, talking with victims groups for a while now and trying to make changes. And, you know, it started working with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So it has been trying to make changes that, you know, help prevent these things. And I think that people aren't really sort of looking at this so holistically and like, you know, saying like, okay, well, you know, it's been like this or not. Maybe it can help now. They're just saying like, ah, it's called Pornhub. It's the giantest, you know, porn thing on the internet. We need to go after that as sort of a stand in for all sorts of things that they don't like about pornography. Right. So they're sort of using the website as, as the problem here, as opposed to the specific content, which, uh, look, if, if, you know, the, if the goal is to get this stuff off the internet and, and to go after those who are creating and uploading this stuff, you, you would think that you would want to be able then to work with the company. The company has a vested interest in not having this stuff, and, and if they can be a part of the solution, it can. I, I think it, that would be a way of dealing with all of this. But that lets, I guess, the company off the hook, and a lot of people are, are not prepared to do so, are they? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, definitely that they definitely should be part of the solution. That's the only way sort of with these, because if you look at the numbers too, I mean, there was an independent watchdog group in the, U, in the UK and it said it found like 118 instances of potential underage content or abusive content on, on Pornhub in like a three-year period. And Facebook and sites like Reddit and Twitter and all of them have reported thousands, if not millions of things, potential underage and abusive, like sexually abusive content that has been uploaded to their uh, website in like a single year. So, I mean, these are, these are not good proxies. Some are self-reporting, some are from an outside group. And also I don't want to let anybody off the hook from it. But I think that what you said is true is that none of these sites, including Pornhub, including things like Backpage and Craigslist before it, none of these sites want to allow underage people to post on the site. None of these sites want to allow abusive content. And it's much better to have them sort of be there to, to use good filters and work with authorities and help, you know, uh, catch people who are actually trying to still post stuff like that than to have 
you know, them have to face all these huge hurdles that just hurt legitimate businesses and legitimate sex workers. And then all of the creeps and criminals just go further underground anyways, where they're not going to cooperate with authorities. Right. So the, some of the steps a Pornhub has taken now, they've uh, made the decision to remove all uploaded content from unverified users. And I, I think that's a proactive step. It might come across uh, to some as though that, you know, they're acknowledging the problem here that these unverified users are posting all kinds of, of horrible and awful things. I, I guess it doesn't imply that. But what, what does that what does that move suggest to you? I think just the trouble is that with unverified users, yeah, you, ha- you had less of an assurance, you know, that that they were going to be, that, that everyone involved, even if they were adults, was going to be there willingly. Um, you know, if you have verified users, a lot of times it's, you know, uh, companies that are very verified or just independent creators a lot of the times. Um, so it just gives an extra layer of protection um, for making sure that they're not spreading content that people like, you know, revenge porn, like you said, things like that, people do not want to willingly have up there. Um, I think, yeah, it's definitely a good step, but I think we'll sort of see the goalpost shift because a lot of the groups that are leading this, like um, this group Exodus Cry and this group, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, but which used to be just called Morality in the Media, they changed their name. Um, and they're, they're sort of big, you know, they're, they're against Cosmo Magazine and Teen Vogue and against, you know, every app out there, every hookup out, out there. Back in the, you know, 80s, they were against like rap music and things like that. So yeah. it's, it's, it's these groups that are very much invested in sort of, you know, this, this moral panic around all sorts of entertainment and cultural issues. And I think that Pornhub is just sort of their latest uh, target. Because it's it's fair to hold internet giants accountable, right? It's it's fair to hold Facebook accountable if they're not doing a good enough job policing content or, or taking down horrible stuff. If if YouTube is is slow to react when when horrible things get uploaded to YouTube, that's fine, and we we can fault them for how they're dealing with all of this. But ultimately, I don't think people are trying to shut down YouTube or to to shut down Facebook. Right. There does seem to be a different standard here, I think. Right, definitely. Because nobody's saying that, you know, Pornhub doesn't need to clean up its act at all or that other adult content websites don't need to clean up their act at all and can't do better. But as we can see from these numbers and from so many uh, other pieces of evidence out there when it comes to content online, not just, you know, sexual content, but, you know, um, different other kinds of speech and violent content, you know, all of the social media companies, all of the sites that rely on user-generated content are having the same struggles, which is just that it's really, really hard once you reach a certain scale to be able to totally filter out content that is deemed harmful in, in various ways. So how do you, you know, how do you create better systems? And I think everybody's still figuring that out right now, but you don't have them going after sort of, you know, some companies in the same way they do ones that are, that are based in sex or things like that. I mean, if Pornhub went away, or if we bought into the notion that Pornhub was, was to blame for all of this, so let's shut them down. Do we really think that that would make all of these, these problems go away? Oh, yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, but again, there's an element, too, of people just sort of wanting to sweep things under the rug a little bit, too. Um, you know, people used to complain that there was ads for sex work on Craigslist and Backpage, and, you know, the goal was to shut those down, too. And um, But, you know, ads just went other places. We can see that, you know, Craigslist stopped allowing certain kind of ads. Backpage was shut down by the federal government, and all of the sex ads out there have just gone to a, a, a billion different other sites, which just sort of, you know, makes them more decentralized and harder for authorities to sort of monitor them for actually abusive content. So... Yeah, I don't it doesn't I don't think it actually stops things at all. It just sort of sweeps it under the rug a little more.
Well, there are some lawsuits uh, that, that are pending against MindGeek, the company that owns Pornhub, and I guess we'll see what comes of all of that. But, yeah, in the meantime, you know, there, there are these efforts to, to try to uh, hold this site accountable or even bring this site down. Now, this is a Montreal-based company, so th- there is kind of an international context to it. How different do you think this situation would be, given that a lot of the pressure is coming from the U.S., if this was a, a U.S.-based company and website? Yeah, I'm not really sure because I don't know what what exactly the laws are in um, in Canada around this. You know, in the United States, you have you can't have a website that's you know actively helping do criminal content or breaking federal laws or refusing to report um, you know known instances of child pornography or anything like that. But there is you know sites are not in trouble for things that they don't know exist. So if they, as long as they, you know, report things when they catch it, they're not liable if it goes up in the first place. And that's sort of been a big problem. Not not problem. It's been perceived as a big problem in the United States, again, with all sorts of content, with people sort of wanting to end that law so that they can, they say, you know, protect against all sorts of bad content across the Internet. But I think that, you know, in truth, it would just amount to a sort of unworkable system for, for people and, yeah, sort of have a lot of unintended consequences. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Much more, as mentioned, Reason.com. Elizabeth, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. All right, take care. Uh, That is Elizabeth Nolan-Brown, Senior Editor at Reason Magazine, Reason.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.